Today's guest is Dr. Paul Kudunaris. He is a photographer and an author with a PhD in art history. He is the author of three best-selling books on the subject of death and is a well-known figure in the macabre art history and positive death movement. In addition, he is a feline historian, and we will be talking about his most recent book, A Cat's Tale, Journey Through Feline History. Dr. Kudanaris, I really appreciate you coming on my show. Thank you. Well, I am pleased to be here, and I love talking about both the death stuff and the cat material, so I think we'll have to talk about Yes. So how did you go from writing about death to writing about cats? That is a great place to start. It seems like a little bit of a jump. There's a missing link in there. When I finished my last book of the, the three books about death, I had intended to write a book about the history of pet cemeteries. So that really is with, within the death stuff, you know. And um, I got, when I kept doing this pet cemetery research, doing the photos, I kept coming across so many amazing animal stories. And I happen to love cats. And so many of these stories involved cats, and, and they had really, uh, they had never gotten their historical due. And so I decided, you know, it's like, God, these cat stories really deserve more than, like, you know, two sentences in a book about pet cemeteries explaining why this cat grave is here. Maybe I should work on something involving cats. And at the same time, I have a cat who happens to be kind of a supermodel, and she's well known on the Internet for doing feline cosplay. So I really kind of put these two things together, you know, it's all right. Let's push the pet cemetery book for later. And let's take all these cat stories. Let's let my cat tell them as the narrator and lead people on a journey through feline history. And at the same time, let's do these photos with her to allow her to kind of cosplay these historical roles and these famous historical figures. So that's how that came together. And that's how that it, it really did grow out of the death work. It's just that there's this missing link in there. The Pet Cemetery book that was supposed to come forth has still not been written. Well, there's always time for that book. So what was your... Yeah, I'm getting back to the Pet Cemetery stuff now, actually. I'd like to... All right. Well, what was your approach to history telling about this book and history telling in general? Well, you know, that's a great question, actually, because one thing that I really learned from perusing feline history is that, of course, we always tell history from a human perspective, as we would be expected to being humans. But that means that no matter how much we try to broaden the discourse and no matter how inclusive we try to make it, it's still a human history, which means that animal history never really gets told or they always kind of get left out. And, you know, it's like in the introduction to a cat's tale of the narrator who is a cat talks about this very issue. She talks about, it's like, well, you know, if you are writing about, you know, the great conquests and you talk about Alexander the Great, his horse is Bucephalus. You know, Bucephalus is along for the ride, literally providing the ride. Is Bucephalus not as much of her as Alexander? If you asked a horse who was really great, maybe the answer isn't Alexander. Maybe the answer is Bucephalus. And so I determined that by writing as a cat, what I really wanted to do was, of course, it's a character. <laughs> Obviously, I'm aware that I'm not really a cat, but develop this character who is feline who is going to distinctly tell his feline perspective rather than human perspective and you wind up then maybe with 
with versions of some well-known stories that are really a little bit different because how would a cat look at these things that had happened that had involved cats? Wow, yeah, I think that's a great idea. So in your research, where did the idea of a cat having nine lives come from? The the earliest I can ever find a reference to that actually comes from ancient Egypt. And it's not a specific reference to a cat having nine lives, but there is a way you can infer it from ancient Egyptian mythology. There is this, um, you know, the Egyptians, they're polytheistic. And they had this entire pantheon, have a lot of creation myth legends, and a lot of them overlap. But one of them involved uh, a great cat and uh, who was the sun god, and then one begets another, begets another. And in the end, you wind up with the original one and more, so the original kind of cat, great cat, kind of gets eight more beings that are divine. And that was the earliest reference I could ever come up come up with involving a cat and like this idea of nine lives. Hmm. That's very interesting. Um, it's not a surprise it's Egypt and the Egyptians really loved cats, you know, so maybe it is in fact something that has stuck with us for all this time. Wasn't there a Egyptian cat god? I mean, there was an actual name of a god or a cat-like god? Well, there were a couple. Um, the most famous one is Bastet, who was the, the divine cat goddess. Um, Bastet was female, and typically in the ancient world, um, div divinities associated with cats were female. Um, you know, it kind of starts this gendering that goes on to this day where we consider cats to be a more feminine animal, dogs a more masculine animal, which I think end is part of the reason why cats have, you know, their accomplishments have been kind of cut out of history because much like, you know, um, we've cut out a lot of things from the feminine sphere, you know, female poets and female artists and female politicians and philosophers mm -hmm. never quite got their due. I think that's, that's one of the, that dogs were always considered, you know, heroic and, you know, you know uh, valiant and loyal and cats were considered disloyal and capricious, even though the truth is not, not that. Um, I think it's because they were associated with the feminine sphere, but um, the ancient world started this kind of association between cats and the feminine sphere, sphere, and that very much in Egypt was this association with the deity Bastet. But in ancient Egypt, they understood cats a lot better than we did. They were, they were yes, gendered feminine by being associated with Bastet, but at the same time, there was another deity named Sekhmet who uh, was also feline, but more associated with, with like the ferocity of a cat, like, you know, uh, like a lion and so forth. And Sekhmet had a, a leonine head and Sekhmet was the patron of the army. So on the one hand, you know, the Egyptians really did understand, you know, that cats were gendered feminine, but also masculine. They really it did understand a couple poles of feline behavior. Yes, a cat is a domestic animal. It is noted for, you know, the way it tends its young. It is a it is a protector of its young and, and so forth, um, and that was associated with with Bastet as the domestic the, the domestic feline goddess. But then they also understood the ferocity of the cat. You know, a cat is a hunter. even even a domestic feline is still an apex hunter that can kill a hell of a lot more creatures than a tiny little dog of the same size. And that was imbued, you know, these were the powers imbued with Sekhmet. So the Egyptians really had two, 
uh, Bastet and Sekhmet, and they were not contradictory. They were opposite sides of a coin, both of which together really made up the divine feline. The divine feline was not just Bastet. The divine feline, the fullness of it, was Bastet plus Sekhmet. Yeah, I think it's amazing that you point that out because not until you mentioned that, I mean, I knew it, but I just didn't, I didn't think about it, that cats are always given this feminine quality to them. Yeah, and I always say to people as an example, you know, um, if I told you, you know, because it really does, as enlightened as we think we are now, it really does hold to the present day. If I said to you, hey, I have a friend who owns five Angora cats, and I have a friend who owns five Dobermans. Which one is male and which one is female? Everyone just intuitively, without really thinking, is going to say, well, the, the one with Dobermans is the guy and the five Angora cats is a girl, right? Not necessarily true. They've just gendered that way. And, and it's funny because it's so easily undermined. That, that, that polarity is so easily proven when just think about it. You know, who is the king of the beasts? Not the queen of the beasts. The king of the beasts is the lion of the lion. It's a cat who's the king of the beasts. And I'll tell you, you know, in a, in a straight up fight, I'll take a lion or a tiger over a wolf. And think about this. You know, the dogs are associated with hunting and the outdoor world. And the as I used to say in medieval times, the Vita Activa and the cats are associated with the domestic world and the Vita Contemplativa. But at the same time, it's like you want to think of cats. People want to think of cats as these, you know, domestic animals that don't really, really do much. What about lap dogs and lap dogs who that for centuries and centuries were were also a symbol of femininity? Wealthy women would have to have their little lap dog, not necessarily a lap cat, a lap dog. So it's actually completely preposterous because the whole history of humanity has told us that cats really do broach the spectrum to masculinity and dogs really do broach the spectrum of femininity but it's just kind of the stereotype that still exists to this day the cats are the feminine side and dogs are the masculine side and it's been that way since the ancient world and like i said i think that's why cats were denied their historical due just because they were considered the feminine one yeah and i find that really fascinating do you think cats have also kind of been negatively stereotyped because they're usually with witches and dogs aren't? Yeah, that comes from the same place. It comes from the ancient world and it comes from that gendering. Hmm. Uh, remember, when it comes to witchcraft, the war against witchcraft in the Middle Ages, through the Renaissance, through the Baroque, books like the Malleus Maleficarum, read them. They're not really books against magic. They're books against gender and especially against aberrant gender. They're books that are designed to battle women who live on the fringes of society, which is a threat to patriarchal society. In the you know, the Christian world had to do away with the pagan world. And to do that best, it would demonize anything that the pagans held to be sacred. So if the pagans held if the pagans held cats to be sacred and venerate them, then the Christians, of course, had to castigate them and cast them down and cast them as the devil. So cats became associated with the devil, but they were also associated with women. I've already we've already mentioned that from the ancient law. So cats really in the Christian era, especially during the witch trials, became associated with with the devil, hence witches right the witch is tied to the devil um but also associated with aberrant women with bad women good women good women wouldn't have a cat 
But so cat became associated with the bad woman, the aberrant woman, the aberrant version of femininity that is a threat to to the patriarchal society. So yeah, it all fits together and it all comes from the same place. Cat's gendered as feminine, then the pagan world overturned, things that the pagans had held were sacred were now diabolic. Cats become diabolic, they're still associated with women, and they're associated with the bad woman who worships the devil, the woman who practices magic. That's interesting. Did you find out any history of cats within Asia or China? Oh, of course. And they were greatly venerated in these places as well. Um, There is a migration with domestic felines that occurs, and it's pretty easy to be defined. You know, cats first become domesticated in the ancient Middle East. You know, you're talking about Anatolia, you're talking about Turkey, you're talking about Mesopotamia. Eventually, they will travel down to Egypt as domestic animals as well. We like to think of them then traveling from Egypt to places like Greece and Rome. But in truth, they started traveling east before they started traveling north. Because, of course, you know, Mesopotamia wasn't associated only with Egypt. That's just kind of how the history books write it, because we want to lead, you know, make this path to lead up to modern day Western civilization. We want to claim the great Egyptians as our own. Well, the truth is there was a history of cats in places like India around the same time. Trade routes, you know, because there were established trade routes leading all across Asia Minor and all the way into Eastern Asia. And so the cats who had this wonderful ability to serve as mousers and serve as protectors of stock and food and so forth from vermin wind up being important parts of these caravans. And so they travel along through the East and they become known in places like Southeast Asia and all the way into Japan and stuff and greatly venerated. They're greatly, greatly venerated there. You know, in the book, uh, the, the feline narrator says that when they, reached Japan, and they are so venerated in Japan, which they really were at one time, it was almost like the glory days on the Nile being reborn again, because they were really extremely well-received and loved in Japan. From there, of course, they also eventually, from Egypt and and from the Middle East, they start traveling northward into into Europe. Um, It was technically illegal to take a cat out of Egypt, but people would smuggle them out so they could sell them in Greece. Because in in Greece at the time, um, in archaic Greece, they had uh, martens and weasels as their mousers and their uh, rodent killers, which, you know, yes, a weasel can kill a rodent, but it also might kill your chickens and whatever else. Cats were much better and they were much better at just killing the rodents. And so they become valued in Greece and then the Romans take them all the way up into Northern Europe and they take them all the way up to Britain. When the Romans wind up retreating from Britain, retreating from Hadrian's wall and moving back south, the cats stay because they have been, they're being bred in Britain and the Britons will come to the forts and they will take those cats away. And so that's how they wind up in, in Northern Europe. It's just a very different reception in Europe than it is in Asia because once, you know, Christianity doesn't conquer Japan. Christianity doesn't conquer Thailand where those cats were being venerated. It does conquer Europe. And once that happens after a few centuries, these cats who have been greatly venerated and even in Northern Europe, they were greatly esteemed by pagans in Scandinavia. They're suddenly cast down. Do you think that there's any truth that cats can see spirits or dead people or is that just from the writings or you know as you mentioned earlier there's um you know i like to say that cats and the occult go together like peanut butter and jelly there's um you know i i don't think 
it's just I don't think it's just circumstance that led the ancients to associate cats with magic, to associate cats with the paranormal in a way way beyond they ever did with dogs. Um, you know, you ask a difficult question for me to answer, obviously, because, you know, to say, do they see the dead and do they see spirits? We first have to determine do spirits exist? And I, you know, I can't, I can't give you a definitive answer on that. I'm a firm believer that there are phenomena that we cannot see around us, that there are that, you know, paranormal phenomena is a real thing. I don't, I don't know what it is and I, I'm not able to define it. Um, I do think that there, if there is, I do think that cats are better attuned to pick up on if if there are occult things happening, I do think cats with their greater sensory apparatus are better attuned to pick up on it. One thing about animals in general, and not just cats, is that they are not confined by human rationale. You know, we you know, our brains work in such a way that we have to make sense of something in what is considered the most rational possible way. Animals aren't like that; they will simply react. And so they're not predisposed. If you're asking, you know, let's hypothetically, if spirits do exist, a cat is more likely to to sense one and understand what it is, I suppose, than a human being, because we're going to try to argue it away by some rationale, whereas a cat's just going to accept whatever the phenomenon is. Yeah, makes sense. What do you think about the loyalty of cats? Well. Uh, let me tell you a story, you know, because this is another one of these things where, um, you know, dogs are the loyal ones and cats are the capricious ones Mm -hmm. I have. And it just happens sitting on this table. So I'll show it to you. See this big bronze medal with a picture of a cat on it. Mm -hmm. This medal was won by a cat by the name of Clementine Jones in 1949. Clementine Jones family, the Lundmark family, lived in upstate New York in a small town called Dunkirk. The Lundmarks, Mr. Lundmark, got a job in Colorado, and he had to move near Denver, 1,600 miles away. And they decided they're not going to take their cat with them because their cat was pregnant. They thought it was cruel to move a uh, pregnant cat across the country. So they left the cat with relatives, and it's just going to be their relative's cat. She's going to give birth to her kittens and live in upstate New York. So this cat, Clementine Jones, gives birth to the kittens. A few months later, the kittens are kind of on their own. They can take care of themselves. Clementine Jones disappears. She is gone. No one knows where she is. Everyone assumes she must be dead. She ran away from home. Something happened. She got hit by a car. Somewhere in upstate New York, she's dead. Not true. Clementine Jones had left after her kittens were on their own to find her family that she loved, that had left her behind. And again, they didn't leave her out of behind, out of leave her behind out of malice. They left her behind because they thought it was best for her. But she was so loyal to them and loved that family so much that she set out to find this family, even though they were in a home she had never been in, in a city and a state she had never seen, never been in before in her life. In September of 1950, Clementine Jones shows up on their doorstep in this home she has never seen, in this city and state she has never been in, 1,600 miles away, she had walked across the country, navigated around the Great Lakes, made her way up the Rockies to find this family. 
This is something that we think of only as dogs being able to do. And even then, very, very few dogs. There are recorded, famous recorded cases of dogs who have done this. There was a dog named um, Bobby the Wonder Dog or Silverton Bobby, who in, who had in the early 20th century had walked from Indiana to Oregon to find his family and become super famous. He had become this heroic dog. But no one would ever believe that a cat could do something like this. Well, cats have this and and Clementine Jones is proof cats can be, if that is not loyalty, taking off, walking 1,600 miles across the United States to find the family you love. If that's not loyalty, I don't know what greater proof is needed. Yeah, I, a, I don't know what greater That's an amazing story. When I was in college, my roommate brought home a cat. And I believe cats choose humans they want to befriend because this cat, although I was friendly with it and I didn't bring the cat home, the cat just chose me. In the middle of the night, I would wake up and the cat would be in bed with me and would freak me out. And um, where I would get up in the morning or, and the cat would leave dead animals in front of my bed. So, but again, I didn't, Offerings. Like, yeah, yeah, but I didn't, you know, I didn't do anything special to make this cat like me. I just believe it chose me. Is that something that you find that's common in their personalities? Yeah, for sure. Um, my cat, who is the narrator of the book, who's the photographic model in the book. I mean, it's her book. Her name's on the book above mine. She chose me. And and that's that's actually a remarkable story because I had gone down to the pound. She's from she's a rescue cat from the um, from the Los Angeles City Animal Shelter on Lacey Street in East L.A. I had gone down to adopt a different cat that I thought I had wanted. And, you know, when when animals come into the pound, there's a waiting period before they can be adopted out, depending on the pound, it could be a week or 10 days in case someone claims them or whatever. I had visited this other cat every day that this cat was in lockup waiting for this cat to be adopted. When I went down to get that cat the day that it was going to be released, I didn't come home with that cat. I came home with another cat, this one, because this cat shows me. And it's and people who have had it happen, they know exactly what I'm talking about. There's something they can do, a way they can look at you that just kind of stares through you into your soul. And it kind of sends this message. It's like, yeah, me and you, we're the ones who are supposed to be together. And it's a real feeling when it happens to you. Um, I always say that, you know, <laughs> the cats have it figured out and the dogs too. And it's best to listen to them. I think you get into trouble when the humans decide, when the humans are like, no, 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 forget that one that loves me. I want that one over there that looks real fancy and jumps real high. You know, I think that's when you get in trouble. Mm-hmm. Take the, <laughs> take the animal that loves you and the animal that has chosen you. That's the animal you're supposed to be with as far as the animal kingdom's concerned. And then it tends to work out really well. And yeah, they, they will choose a person. What it is about that person? Oh, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe it's not something supernatural or weird at all. Maybe it's something that their sensory apparatus can cue them into just being more sophisticated than ours. Maybe it's something about a scent or something that we give off or something, but they can pick up on it in a way that we can't. And they tend to know the people they want to be with. One of the most interesting things about that cat was whenever I was going to go on break in between semesters and I would take off for a few days or whatever, the cat would go nuts just running around the house. Like it knew for some reason that I was going to take off for a couple of days. Have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, they always know. In fact, even if I go away for a day trip, my cat 
and I have more than one now, they know. They instantly know. They know by my body language, or they know by the way I'm packing things, or they know by the way I'm picking up my keys that I'm not just going to the store. They know these things. They know us so well. Um, I was doing the photos for the book with my cat, the costume photos. She knew that we were doing a photo shoot before I had done anything to set up for it. She just knows because she knows me so well. And it's something that I'm giving off. You know, I would come in, I'd come home and I might have some, some fabric or, you know, like a, a teddy bear dress that I was going to put on or a doll wig. And this stuff is still in a bag and she just knows. And she just would jump up on the box where we take the photos and stare at me. It's like, okay, let's start. And like, uh, Hey, uh, we're not ready yet. I need to re-sew stuff and recut the armholes and style the wig. We're not ready yet. She just stared at me from the box. It's like, well, we're doing this today, right? She just knew something about me, something I'm giving off. I guess then it's not too much um, trouble or work for you to put the cat in all those costumes. It just kind of naturally will do it. Yeah. Um, people have asked me about that. They said, you know, how do you get a cat to wear costumes and to pose? And my answer is always, you don't. <laughs> they either want to do it or they don't. She's willing to do it. If they don't want to do it, it's not happening. If a cat doesn't want to wear a wig and a hat, it's not wearing it. And that's the end of the story. And mine just happens to be highly, highly unusual in her willingness to do this. That's awesome. You said your cat was famous on the internet is she does she have a her own instagram site or tiktok or or facebook she's under mine um my account is hexenfold h-e-x-e-k-u-l-t she's under mine i have never made her, her an instagram because mark zuckerberg already owns me and he owns everything else he doesn't need to own a cat right she doesn't need to be any cog in his machine um, but she's had art even before the book. She's had articles on her as a model in uh, newspapers as far away as New Zealand, uh, in, in in Bolivia, in Austria, in Italy. So she's been written up around the world just as a cosplay. Model. Oh, that's awesome! What made you decide to put the book in the cat's voice? Well, there's there's a very uh, distinct answer for that. It's very specific. I had, in the process of researching this, I had not only done a lot of archival research, I had also read every book that had ever been written in the history of felines, right? Mm. They all have a massive problem. Because when you're talking about the history of animals, of course, you know, we don't have any firsthand accounts since the animals don't give an oral history and they don't write. So what we have are these stories that are just really kind of disjointed. And if you read other histories of cats, they're kind of a bumpy ride. It's like, I like it to drive the street full of speed bumps, like story, bump, story, bump, story, bump. And there's really no cohesiveness to it. And so writing it from the cat's perspective was a way of giving it some cohesiveness, you know, to kind of gloss over the bumpiness by using the character of the narrator, because by taking it and putting it in a cat's voice, suddenly she is allowed as kind of your guide. She is allowed to editorialize. She's allowed to have emotion in the story. And all of that helps to, you know, even out the bumpy ride a little bit because the narrator then, her personality and her voice becomes as much a, a it becomes a much a, as much a subject in the work as the stories themselves. Well, that's interesting. 
Does your book speak about the history of specific breeds like Siamese or Calicos or? Uh, well, uh, a little bit. It does actually talk about, a little bit about the history of the Siamese cats, or at least the legends of the Siamese cats. But um, not so much, because you got to remember, this is a history book from a perspective of, the, of a cat. Does a cat really care about different breeds? Not really. From a cat's perspective, I figured that you know, they're all kind of equal. The hierarchy is in human terms when one has, you know, greater monetary value because it happens to be a purebred. And she kind of mentions this a little bit too in the book, that cats don't really care about breeds and cats don't really care in humans about race. Yeah. Every, you know, it's being a pretty, it's a pretty democratic thing to be. So mm -hmm. no, she doesn't really get into too much breed. It's a, I think it's irrelevant to a cat what breed another cat is, just like it's irrelevant to a cat what the race of the human who owns it is. Yeah. That's There's not a lot of prejudice there is what I'm trying to say. They yeah. don't really care about breeds, I think. Yeah, that's a great point. In your research, I know we spoke about that cats choose humans, but do you think that there is a particular breed over another that would make a better companion for a human well oof, that's that's actually a really good question um i think my you know there are when you get into the world of purebreds and i have to say that i'm not a purebred guy that all the cats i've ever owned have come from animal shelters they've all been rescues and they've all been mixed breeds when you get into the world of purebreds with cats, just like with dogs, there tend to be certain personality traits that, that are perhaps a little bit more typical. Hmm. Um, what, but I have to point this out, that breeding is a lot more important when it comes to dogs than it comes to cats. If you talk to people who own dogs and you ask them, you know, say, oh, you own a dog, what breed is it? They'll usually tell you. It's like, it might it might not be a purebred Cocker Spaniel. It's like, oh, it's a, but it's a Cocker Spaniel mixed with a Dachshund or something. You know, the, the breed tends to be more important in terms, of in terms of specifying it with dogs than it does with cats. Most people, if you own them cats, it's like, what breed is it? I, I don't know, it's just a cat, you know? Um, think that so anyway i think that the just the issue of breed alone is really much less important with cats than it is with dogs but i think there are some traits that certain cats have even though they're not purebred that that predispose them to certain personalities and i i really don't know why that is i can tell you that i've had several cats and and for me it's tabbies i always get along really well with tabbies some people have a hell of a time with torties, for instance. And, and there's a certain thing they call it tortitude, you know, that torties are supposed to have a really kind of crazy and difficult attitude. But some people have a hard time with them. Some people get along swimmingly with torties. So I think that within that genetic makeup that, that maybe creates a torty or a calico, maybe there is something in there that will, will fit a little bit better with some people than others. Uh, let me get a, so I have a viewer here and uh, the viewer says, you have such a cool, you have such a cool beard. And she was asking oh, your, thank you. 
and she was asking your favorite breed of cat. But I think, as we both said, that you get along best with tabbies. Well, tabby's not a breed; it's a coat pattern. Uh, my my favorite breed is mixed breed. You know, I I like the alley cats. Mm-hmm. Um, and by the way, uh, my beard is a great cat toy. Oh, they yeah. love it. <laughs> Which do you think are smarter, cats or dogs? You know, I'll say this. I think they're I think they're both highly intelligent. I think you're talking about two different kinds of intelligence. You know, a- animals of course don't have book smarts. That's obvious. They're not educated, but that doesn't mean they're not intelligent. They have intelligent. They have they all have what I classify as intuitive intelligence. With dogs, I think they're their intelligence is uh, of a kind that maybe is better for training. Um, but I think they're both highly intelligent. I think it's, it's just different kinds of intelligence. And I think, I think it's, mm, I wouldn't want to compare. Hmm. That makes sense. For me, I believe cats may be smarter, but I'm not sure. But I wonder if you know about the memory of cats, because I, from what I know about dogs, dogs don't have a short term memory. They really have mostly long-term memory. So you have to, when you train them, repeat it over and over and over and over again a million times for them to finally get it. Do you know anything about the memory of cats? Boy, I have to say I really don't, and I don't know anyone who specializes in that. Um, uh, I will say that that all of the cats that I've owned actually seem to have a pretty good memory for things. But I, I don't know anything about the, the facility of memory. And, no. Right. I agree with you that I like mixed breeds because I feel like at least in dogs, they're so overbred that they seem like that now purebred dogs are just dumber. And I'm wondering if it's the same with cats. Have you noticed anything like that? No, not really, because I, again, first of all, I don't really deal much with purebreds. Mm-hmm. Um, second of all, it would I think it would affect a little bit less because cats again as i said the breeding isn't as as important when it comes to cats um you know what what you said about dogs um well first of all obviously there are problems in any breeding situation if the uh gene pool is too small um it's not just a problem of them being dumber and you can you can look at this with human beings as well um human beings who uh are are inbred let's say uh oftentimes to ha- tend to have both physical and problems um and this is certainly true with with animals as well um so i think the problem that you're talking about is really a problem of bad breeding when you get to, when you get some breeders who don't breed well and create a strong genetic matrix, I think you can wind up with an animal that is maybe not just mentally challenged, but also physically challenged as well. They tend to break down a lot more. They tend to have a lot more health problems. Yeah, I agree with you. I think that the the monetary value of the dog market may be much bigger than the cat market. But I would assume that there are certain cats that can still command a high price, maybe like Persian cats. Sure, yeah. Um, you know, the the purebred market uh, is it's, it's a big money market, and yes, and especially when it comes to dogs, but certain cats as well. 
There is, um, especially in the United States, though, there's a real, um, what they call adopt, don't shop movement. And it's real strong to the point that a lot of people kind of get grief, especially when it comes to cats, about buying from breeders. It's considered not real hip and um, not not a, a positive thing to do. I've seen a lot of people get grief over having purebred. Not, well, not, not because they can't just because they're buying from a breeder, you know, because there's so many, especially cats rotting away in shelters and so forth. Um, so, you know, in terms of the monetary value, I think that's, uh, it's just my opinion, but I think that's, that's kind of a market on decline. I think especially in the United States, you're really going to see it going more and more towards especially with cats, people adopting those shelter pets instead of going to a breeder. It may be too in a location because you're out West and, and they may be a little bit more in tune with that. I'm in Texas and you still got quite a few pet stores here. Uh, you mean pet stores selling the cats? Well, I guess, you know, they're probably the breeders, mostly dogs. Breeders don't sell through pet stores. Right. Well, I think a lot of the pet stores here, they buy them from breeders. That could be. That's that's not something I know anything about. Um, California, in particular, though, California has a lot of stray cats. California probably has the largest stray cat population in the country, and so that might also be the reason the kind of adopt-don't-shop thing is so popular, because we have more stray cats than anybody. Mm -hmm. Wow. Is there anything in the cat history of the cat eating catnip, maybe if you go back to the Middle Ages or further back, that they think the cat is possessed or anything because they didn't understand? Oh, that's, a, that's an interesting question. I have to say I've never found any record of that. Um, although, uh, <laughs> you're talking about possession and cats. Um, cats in, in that period, and we're not really talking about the Middle Ages or the medieval period, but that period, we're really talking about 16th and 17th centuries. Cats were considered um, very easily possessed devil or by demons i should say cats were considered very amenable to it um there were certain demonologists who wrote specifically about animals who thought that of the entire animal kingdom cats were the most likely to be possessed by a demon um it's something that comes as a little bit of a surprise when you talk to people about demonic possession nowadays like animals being possessed by the devil hey that wasn't in the exorcist right mm -hmm. well the truth is you know most of what we know about demonic possession we get from horror films and stuff mm -hmm. and back in the day it was possible all manner of things to be possessed by demons um because you know one demonological theory yes the demons could possess human beings and they would love to possess human beings because you can do all kinds of bad things if you've taken possession of a human body but there was one demonological theory that animals were actually more frequently possessed and more likely to be possessed than human beings because Human beings have the first barrier against possession. They have the capacity for the first barrier against possession. The first barrier against possession is faith, right? A human being can have faith, an animal cannot. So if you have enough faith and a strong enough faith, the demon can't get to you, but the demon can just go, you know, right into that cat, right? Mm -hmm. And so that would be a way for a demon to work its way into human society. 
by entering into the body of an animal and then living in human society uh, with people as this animal. Uh, and that was an entire subcategory that was distinct from witches' familiars were, were cats that were actually thought to be possessed by demons. And that was something much more powerful than a witch's familiar. That was actually a demon in an animal guise that could shape, shape all sorts of terrible things. Mm-hmm. Do you find that in history, cats were needlessly and mercilessly tortured or killed or burned at the stake along with the witches? Well, that's absolutely true. Um, one thing that uh, the narrator in the book talks about are even certain mandates from on high, you know, from the Vatican that allowed a cat to be considered as culpable and punishable for witchcraft as the witch herself. And um, the witches, you know, again, there's we have this misconception that all this witchcraft stuff is very medieval. It's, it's really not. It really starts with the Malleus Maleficarum in the late 15th century. Um, you know, the cats were being punished and being thrown on the bonfires long, long, long before the witches were because the cats were already being thrown into the bonfires during the wars against heresy, during the wars against the Cathars and the Valdensians and even the Knights Templar. In the trial of the Templars, cats play an important role because the cats were thought to appear, the devil was a thought to appear to the Templars in the guise of this cat and just giant black cat, not a goat, you know, a giant black cat. And so cats were considered diabolic way back and uh, they were being burned along with the heretics long before the witches is that also when the cat being black got the bad rep yeah kind of um you know that's a, a much bigger issue really regarding the color black itself right um and and a, a very sad and sordid issue um even to this day this idea that that you know it, it Something, especially in European history, that was very common that, you know, black represented bad and represented sin and white was the good, you know, and black was the down and white was the up. And it's had a lot of really uh, terrible repercussions. But, yeah, the devil was always a giant black cat. The devil never appeared as a giant white cat, to my knowledge. I've never seen that written. Did you do any research on why and how the cat got the name Pussycat? No, I really don't know that. Actually, it's a great question. I really don't know. Yeah, I'm. I'm curious myself. Where did you know? Where? When did that name started being attached to the cat? And again, it's interesting because you're using that word as a female, you know, engendering again, as we mentioned in the beginning of our, right. our conversation. Well, I think cats are being called puss or pussy long before female genitalia is. Um, there is. Uh, <laughs> there's a whole history in many languages of, of cat or variations of cat being used as, as slang for prostitutes and female genitalia and so forth. Um, what, the earliest term for cat care actually in the United States in the late 19th century was pussyology, which is a term you, you know, now it just sounds like some horrible version of gynecology or something. Pussyology is <laughs> utterly bizarre. cat care and there was a famous manual was like kind of one of the first cat care manuals in the united states and it was just called pussyology which you really wouldn't get you know you wouldn't get away with using that term now for cat care bit of a problematic term but yeah pussyology was the original term for cat care oh wow 
All right. Well, um, so you have your three best-selling books. You've got this book. Do you have any other projects that you're working on that you want us to know about? Well, uh, if you want to know about them, um, I want to go back to doing that book that didn't get done on the history of pet cemeteries. That's a fascinating history and really interesting. Well, just in terms because it crosses a lot of things like how we interact with animals, how we interact with the dead, um, you know, how we as a society say goodbye to an animal because there really aren't rituals for it the way there are for human beings how it affects us and just kind of the history of how we have laid animals to rest, I think is, is very fascinating. So I've been working on that bit by bit um, over the past year to try to get that done at some point too. Although I have to admit that um, working during COVID is just not working out real well. It's I work on it every day, but COVID has made everything a bit distracting. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned pet cemeteries. When I was in college in undergrad back in the late eighties, so this is going to date me. I was taking photography. Where'd you, uh, where'd you go to college? Uh, well, that college was just here in Texas, San Antonio College. It's just a community college. But um, in my photography class, I knew of an old pet cemetery, and I went out there. I might still have those photographs somewhere, but I I went and filmed a bunch of tombstones or little – it was either tombstones and or little maybe cement stones that are laid down flat and of of the cemetery and i remember there was one it was like here lies scruffy you know and the date 1953 to 1971 or whatever you know and this was this was a cemetery in texas yeah it was there in the late 80s and now it's gone i mean i don't know if it's been bulldozed over and strip malls been put in its place or whatever but it was there at one time yeah this happens a lot with pet cemeteries and it's very sad uh, but, you know, animal graves are obviously not legally protected or ethically protected the way human graves are, because you would never do that. You never do that. But um, in addition, um, there are two factors that make pet cemeteries really vulnerable. First of all, you know, human cemeteries are these big operations that are started with a business model. Pet cemeteries are usually started by people who just love animals, who want to do good for the community and provide a burial place. And so they tend to not be big money-making enterprises. People open these pet cemeteries without really a business plan to keep them going. And because the, the plot of land itself tends to be very, very small for a pet cemetery versus a human cemetery, they tend to fill up. And once they fill up, there there's no means for them money anymore at all um and so they they tend to wind up being failed business ventures within a generation or two but um the other thing that affects them is the way we mourn animals you know um i call it the lifespan of mourning like how long someone will continue to mourn something that has passed you know you might continue to mourn your grandfather and visit his grave or even your great grandfather you might periodically visit the grave and lay something at the grave you're not going to visit your grandfather's dog and you're certainly not going to visit your great grandfather's cat because the relationship with the animal is so intimate it's so one on one because this is nonverbal relationship that no one really understands the, no one really understands that relationship or no one really comprehends the feeling of loss other than the person who owned the animal and so once those cemeteries fill up, not only are they not making any money, no one is coming back to 
to care one iota about the grounds at all anymore because the you know once the people who have owned those animals have passed on the lifespan of mourning has ended and by that time the pet cemetery itself is is essentially dead i wish i had those pictures it's a long story but i'm just in a, i'm in an apartment right now it's just a weird transition and a lot of my stuff almost all of my stuff is in storage but if i ever find those pictures i'm going to send them to you maybe you can for free you can <laughs> use them for whatever I'd love to look at them, especially if it's a pet cemetery that's not there anymore. Uh, there is one I visited in Dallas. Uh, that's kind of, I don't know if it's the oldest one in Texas that still survives, but it's there. Um, I know that at, uh, what's the Air Force base? Is it Lackland is the one in San Antonio? Yes. Well, there's actually four in San Antonio. Yes, but Lackland's in San Antonio, right? That's where the that's where the military dog program is, is Lackland, right? Right, that's where that's where Air and, Force. Uh, they've got some dog graves there. Hmm. Yeah, they've got some dog graves there, but I don't know of too many pet cemeteries in Texas. Hmm. I know this is going to be pure speculation, but do you think pets' consciousness, spirits, souls, uh, go on after death, like reincarnation or anything like that? <laughs> it's funny because um, I. I've written some drafts, a chapter on this for this proposed pet cemetery book that, which, like I say, I hope someday to write. Um, but I've written them from the perspective of giving different perspectives from people in many different cultures and throughout history, rather than giving an opinion on it, because I really, as you say, it's speculation. Um, and I would really hate to try to foist my opinions off on anyone else as as something that is fact i will say this um if you believe that the human soul lives on i don't think you can't believe that the animal soul lives on and i know that is for a lot of people that's contrary to to what they think christian doctrine is they think that christian doctrine holds that humans have souls and animals do not, but Christian doctrine doesn't actually hold that. That's actually a misconception based on some, some weird translations, especially the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, it says that, um, that God breathed nephesh into human beings to bring them to life, and nephesh was translated as soul, whereas in nephesh, but God also breathed nephesh into animals when he brought them to life, but it was simply translated as the breath of life, because nephesh can mean both breath of life or it can mean soul. But what it really means is that God gave, at least according to these early versions of the Old Testament, according to these, these non-English words, that what God gave to animals was the exact same thing that he gave to humans. So even if you're a Christian, I don't think it's really fairy for you to believe if you think the human soul goes on that the animal soul does. Makes sense. Let me catch another question here. Dr. Kudinaris, are there any yeah. special reasons that connected your special love to animals, specifically to cats? Well, um, I've always had them. I had them since I was a child. Um, I had one that I loved very dearly for over 21 years. And uh, I've got this one that I love very much, too. They've just always been, for me, they've been great companions. You know, um, I'm not anti-dog or anti any other kind of domestic animal. You know, uh, I, I think rabbits are great and opossums are great pets, too. Cats just happen to be perfect for my lifestyle. Cats and I work together really well as a team. 
in terms of how often I'm home and when I'm going off and doing something and their ability to be independent in the home, uh, Katz and I just happen to work well together. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So um, it was kind of hard to understand you because you kind of break up here and there earlier. But again, what are the best ways to check out your book, uh, your website, your um, Instagram or whatever? What are your social pages? Well, I have the Instagram. It's H-E-X-E-N-K-U-L-T. Um, I'm pretty active on that. Uh, I have a Facebook that I really don't look at anymore. Um, my website exists really for people to contact me. It's empiredelamort.com, E-M-P-I-R-E-D-E-L-A-M-O-R-T.com. Um, and it includes some photo galleries involving the death books and also a little bit of information on the cat book, but I don't, I don't update it much. It's really, a, like I say, it really exists just so people have a means to contact me. Um, so I guess the best way to keep up with me if someone wants to keep up with me is through Instagram. But. All right. Uh, where can we find your books if we want to buy them? Oh, well, um, uh, the first three books are published by Thames and Hudson. So they should at least still be available, even if they're not in shops, which nowadays, let's face it, bookshops, I think, are carrying a more limited uh, inventory than they had Past, uh, if they're not available at shops, the death books for sure are available on Amazon um, and available. You know, most of these booksellers like Barnes and Noble um, have websites as well where you can order books and they can certainly get them. Thames and Hudson's a big publisher. Um, the cat book is from Holt and Holt's part of Macmillan. So that book should be um, the only problem. Sorry, my, I have a cat about to jump in front of the camera. Um, the cat book should be readily available in pretty much all major bookstores now since it just came out and it's from a major publisher. Um, the only issue is there have been shipping problems. And so some places just didn't get as many copies as they had ordered. And that's due to issues with COVID-19. Um, but of course it's available, but at all re- all online retail sellers. Do you have a legion of fans that follow your Instagram account? Because I know that there are lots of people, many, many, many people that are really into cats and cat stories and cat pictures, etc. Uh, I don't, I don't know how to answer the question because I don't know how many people are in the legion. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, my Instagram is not just about cats. You know, it's about me. Um, so, you know, there are pictures of my cats dressed as a broke woman, and the next post might be a mummy from Sicily that I had photographed. And, you know, I've got some strange and dubious hobbies like exploring ghost towns and abandoned mines. And so, you know, I might be doing that. So um, I have a lot of people who follow the Instagram. I don't know if it counts as a legion, mm-hmm. um, but it's not, again, yeah, the people are in, into cats. It's not all just about cats. In fact, that's kind of a minority of what's up there since it's really a whole potpourri of stuff. Mm. All right. Well, before we wrap it up here, do you have one last message you want to leave with us about cats? Oh, <laughs> um, you know, I <laughs> the, the end of the book really sums it up for me. Because in the end of the book, the narrator goes away. She makes a point of telling you that she's leaving. And she's leaving you, the reader, 
so that you can go and make your own history because it's a history book, right? But she wants you, she's leaving you so you can go and make your own history with your own cat. And I think that's the message with cats. You know, people will say like, you know, who's the most famous cat or the bravest cat or the whatever, the greatest cat. The greatest cat is whoever your cat is. Whatever cat or dog that you have given your heart to and has accepted it, that's the greatest animal in the world. And that's the animal you need to be spending your time with. Don't worry about all these online famous cats or celebrity animals of any kind. The most famous animal in your world is that dog who's taken your heart or cat or whatever it is. Yeah, that's a great message. I really like that. All right. I really appreciate you giving me a little bit of your time today. I wish you a lot of success with all your books and I hope you're able to get that pet cemetery book out. And when you do contact me, we can have you back and talk about it. That's going to take a couple years, but I'd love to. All right. All right. Well, thank you and have a great evening. All right. You too. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.